book of Revelation chapter 2. The very end of this chapter, the last letter of this chapter, the letter penned by John, given to him by Christ himself, written to the church in Thyatira. Listen as I read from God's word. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works, but to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. You may be seated. Let me pray. Oh Lord, we ask this morning that we might be those who, knowing the future of what is to come, that even now you are judging the nations and there will come a time when you will come with your feet like burnished brass and you will trample upon all of those who have not made peace with you. O oh Lord, that we would be a people who are conquered, conquered by the gospel, conquered by your word, and that we would devote all that we are to your eternal lordship, that we might be holy as you are holy, and that we might not be willing to tolerate in our midst any idolatry or sexual immorality. We ask all of this in your holy and precious name. Amen. John continues to write various letters to various churches, seven letters, seven churches. And as you've heard before, these seven letters, though directed to individual congregations, were to be passed along 
to all seven churches, and they were to read all of the letters. And this lack of privacy, (laughs) that is certain churches knowing other churches' business, was good for the other churches. There is a place then for public discipline in the church. Now you ought to pray, and rightly so, that my life ought to never be an example to the church of how not to do something. Kids, I'm sure at some point in your life, if you've gone to church long enough, you've been dressed down by your father in public. This is a holy dressing down directly from Christ Jesus to each of these churches. Now, some avoid this kind of rebuke. Thyatira is not one of those churches. This does not mean that the other churches were perfect, but that there were no glaring issues that Christ had against them. Here, here, as it has been in other letters, Christ reflects upon one thing or a series of things, but categorized in just one verse, verse 19, where he compliments, congratulates, expresses pleasure in the way they are living. But there is also an element within the life of that church that is very dangerous for them, Christ rebukes or confronts. And these things are tied to the character of Christ himself. Doctrine matters. The doctrine of Christ, the holiness of God. And here, in particular, what I call the all-seeing, serpent-crushing aspect of Christ's messianic reign. And what we see of Christ here, applied to the church in Thyatira, and to our congregation as well. We ought not think, at least I'm not like the Jezebels of the world. But we need to keep a careful watch on our hearts. Three points that I want to focus on this morning. The first, the all-seeing serpent crusher. The all-seeing serpent crusher. Second, Jezebel, the deceiver. And third, living Coram Deo which just means before the face of God, living Coram Deo. Let's look at this first point, the all-seeing serpent crusher. Now, concerning Christ, we find something repeated, as we've seen already, about his, something that is true of him, something that John has seen that Christ reiterates as important, as a preface, as a prelude, as an opening to this letter. The words of the Son of God, that is Jesus Christ, who has eyes like flames of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now, Christ sees everything. That should cause you to shudder. He sees every hidden thought every corrupt desire that you ought not and do not share with every person. He knows you. He knows you like no one else knows you. He knows you better than you know yourself. Even we, at times, deceive ourselves as to what we really are. In fact, the most dangerous and insidious of lies that you tell, you tell to yourself about yourself. And boy, oh boy, is it bad when you begin to believe those lies. Christ is a judge who judges all things according to his own holy standard. And his flaming eyes penetrate deeply to the very heart and marrow of who you are. 
Christ is judge. So you'll often hear the phrase, justice is blind. Well, in this case, justice is not blind. And in fact, the only way that it can be justice is that all of the facts are laid before Christ Jesus, which this means this, that the one who died upon the cross went to the cross with his eyes wide open as to the kind of person or persons he was dying for. That is extraordinary. The Bible says, scarcely, <laughs> scarcely will a man die for someone who is not a friend. He may die for a friend, but not an enemy. That's a rare thing indeed. Christ sees all. And not only is the one who sees all, but here we, ref- we see this, uh, this idea that, again, we see it in chapter 1, here in chapter 2, uh, that his feet are like burnished bronze or burnished brass. It depends on your translation. What does this reflect? Well, his holiness, that he has been refined in the fire of obedience, of which Paul speaks in Philippians 2. Christ was obedient to the point of death. Christ himself is holy, and these feet are seen also on the holy things that are in the throne room of heaven. And that these feet are the feet that Christ will use in his holy judgment to trample upon the nations. And so as John is, is writing and he is taking the words of Christ and he is communicating them to the church in Thyatira, what Christ wants the saints in Thyatira to know is this, I see you as the holy judge of all the earth. This should cause all of us to perk up our radar to get flipped on And to ask this question of myself, what does Christ see in me? What does Christ think of our body? How are we doing? Every year, we have some, or frequently at least enough, in our presbytery, there is someone who audits the books, the numbers, the money. And there's a reason for that, to make sure that we are not only being wise, but that there is honesty and uprightness with how we keep our books. Since churches are completely immune to men um, stealing money, you've, you've seen this, right? So many churches have undergone this kind of problem. Something is going on below the surface Because the people who do those things believe nobody sees. What they really mean is the congregation doesn't see, which means they're doing what? Their law, their life is built upon the outward approval of men. But when that congregation finds out in the last judgment what you've done, what are they going to think? But more importantly, what does Christ see? Does he see faithfulness? Does he see faithfulness in your life, in the leadership of the church, in the way in which we conduct ourselves as a body, corporate, congregationally? How would we be graded in our faithfulness to attend worship, to be together in prayer, to support one another behind the scenes when no one is looking in these promises that we've made towards one another? Christ sees it all. And he sees it all, not as a a God who remains removed and remote, but a God who daily interacts 
and is sovereignly ruling over his church such that there are two intended ends for all men. Either you will reign with Christ or you will be trampled under the reign of Christ. Either you will judge with him and rule with him or you will be ruled by him in a most terrifying way indeed. And the saints in Thyatira were doing pretty well. Look at verse 19. I know your works. How does he know them? Because he's seen them. He knows their works like no one else. And so when you see these elements in which Christ says, well done, he means it. I know your works, your love and faith, and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. There are things that they are doing that are in accordance with Scripture, and they are growing in the things that are mentioned. Well, we know what love is. It is affection for Christ and for his body. They were not struggling with the things that the church in Ephesus was struggling with. Ephesus had good theology, but little heart. Here they have great hearts. They love the Lord, and they serve, and they have strong faith. In this regard, they were doing well. They kept the first and second second great commandment quite well. Their adherence to the word, their resilience, and their patient endurance in all things was good. Their service, that is serving the body, their patient um, their patience under persecution and um, infirmity, like many of the churches experienced in that time in the Roman Empire, were all good marks. All of these things were going well. And their love and faith was evidence of true salvation. And that they were growing. This last part is especially commendable to us. They were growing. They were growing in the things that Christ calls spiritual fruit. Love, faith, service, patience, enduring, well. Yet there was a problem. And so the one who sees all, the one with eyes of fire, whose feet will one day or have and will further conquer and crush the head of the serpent, Satan himself, is giving to them this well done. Well done. Except there is one problem. And that leads me to my second point, to Jezebel the deceiver. Look at verse 20. But I do have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. This prophetess, this false teacher, is called here Jezebel, a pseudonym that is the name of an actual queen that we find in the Old Testament who married Ahab, and in 1 Kings chapter 16 and 19 and elsewhere as well, nipped at the heels of Israel and Elijah the prophet by imposing and violently introducing Baal worship to Israel. Um, she would be a fitting host for the ABC show, The View. 
I actually don't even know who those people are, but I know what they stand for. I know a couple of them. (laughs) She would do very well as a, a hostess of any popular TV talent show today. She would fit right into our sexual hedonistic culture that we find alive and well in the West. And in this is why. Jezebel in the Old Testament is the woman that God warned Israel about intermarrying so that they would not be led astray. Now, there is a story uh, many centuries old where Balaam and Balak were seeking to lead the people of Israel astray, and they were seeking to pronounce curse upon Israel, but Christ stopped them time and time and time again. Israel was constantly plagued, their heels nipped by these idolaters, these false worshipers, those who would come into the camp of Israel and use sexuality as warfare against the nation of Israel in order to divert them from getting to the promised land. And there is one such occasion where a woman makes it into the camp of Israel and an Israelite is engaging in sexual activity with her against God's strict commands not to. And so a young man named Phineas decides to walk into the tent where they are in the throes of passionate love and he runs them both through the stomach with a spear. And he is commended by God for his faithfulness. Now, I need to be careful because I'm not endorsing from the pulpit physical violence against those who are caught in the act of sexual immorality. Christ has given to the church, even now, the Holy Spirit who convicts us of our sin and runs us through with the truth of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. But the sin of sexual immorality in the Old Testament is just as heinous and just as wicked and insidious and destructive to the body of Christ and your own individual faith and the faith of the body as it is, well, it is then as it was now. Then as it is now. Sorry, losing track in my head of my logical argument here. And we must know that there will be those who come into the church who endeavor to lead us away, not purely doctrinally, but they are pulling on the the sort of tugging on the strings of our heart, seeking to allure us in ways that we often call moral or emotional. We are sold the bill of goods by Satan, by him communicating to us this, if you just do this, you will be satisfied. It wasn't that Eve ate the fruit. It's that she lusted after the fruit. She saw that the fruit was for her and for her husband a way out of having to rely upon God for satisfaction, and they took into their own hands the means of their own delight. Jezebel is such a deceiver. In the Old Testament, and here she is given the name Jezebel, 
by Christ, though we don't know her real name, that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a teacher. But what she's really doing is leading people into immorality. Now, how so? By conveying to them that there are boundaries that lie outside of God's expressed will in Scripture that God hath not said, don't do this. Is this not what Satan did? Remember what Satan did? He opened up for what Adam and his wife thought would be allowable conduct, authorized even, yes, by God, by causing these two to doubt what God had said. You do this all the time. Your parents' children will say, don't do X. And so is your little sinful self is enticed to disobedience, you're going to say, well, they didn't tell me not to do this, right? Or maybe you're sitting in the back seat, kids, and your parents say, after you're aggravating one another, back when everybody just drove small cars everywhere, we did this, and you're fighting for whose space is what in the back seat, don't cross that line. Well, what if I just put my hand over the line? Dad's looking in the rearview mirror. I see that hand. Well, I didn't put my whole body over the line because you think somehow that's the point. (laughs) But you're not really disobeying until you're really disobeying. And what was introduced into this church then was teaching that supported immorality. You choose your sin, and then what you do is you create a list of reasons why that sin is actually not sin but is righteous. You do this. And so you convince yourself, you know, I won't go any further. I won't do that. That's really bad. But I will go to here. Do you understand what I'm talking about? Pharisaical boundaries creating a law that is not a law. And so Jezebel was, this woman, Jezebel, was enticing into her company those who were within the church, which means she was what? A member of the local church in good standing up until this point when she was found out. And she was leading others in the church into her Fellowship of wickedness. You know the phrase, misery loves company? Misery loves company. In fact, what Jezebel is, is the kind of person that Paul warns the church about in Romans chapter 1. That there will come people who are given over to the depravity of their minds and endeavoring to suppress an exchange, that is, we're going to push down the revelation of God in our hearts that there is a creator and he is angry with us because we are sinners. We're going to push that down and then we're going to pave over it as best we can our own law to try to push down that sense and understanding that God has made us for himself. And it requires constant layer upon layer of pushing down that knowledge of God in our hearts. 
And in order to do that most effectively, you need team members. You need helpers. You need people who will come alongside of you and say, you're actually brave and courageous for rebelling against God. Well done. And this is the age in which we live right now as it relates to sexual immorality. And this is the temptation, even for the saints, not only to not say something, but to just leave people alone in their sin and not confront it, because what would it do? Listen, in the 1970s, by and large, the evangelical church in America said nothing about rampant divorce, not one word from the pulpit. Is that not sexual sin? And not just divorce, but unbiblical remarriage. And not just that, but now it's what? Love is love. How dare you say someone who feels something for another person doesn't have the right to feel that way? How dare you invalidate that? Well, I'm not, am I? In fact, I'm bound by the word to say what the word says. And the word says what? First of all, we ought not be confused about why people sin. They sin because they want to, because their hearts are led astray. But when they're caught in that sin, they always seek to explain it rationally. And that is what is happening. Jezebel and her followers have created a false religion to justify their immorality. And there were those in the church, the church at large, what was their sin? It wasn't just that they were going with Jezebel. Christ is writing to those who hadn't. And what does Christ say? You're tolerating her. So I have 32 chickens at home. Yes, I know I use my chickens all the time as an example in my sermons. I can't wait till I get more livestock. Maybe one day it'll be pigs and I'll really be talking about people at that point. If there were a raccoon inside the electric netting, he's on the wrong side of the netting. What kind of livestock owner would I be if I see the raccoon out there and I shut the gate with the raccoon in there with the chickens? What would that raccoon do? Well, first, he would slip me a five and say, hey, thanks. What would he do? He would eat them all. He would just, and not just eat. Have you ever seen what a raccoon does to a chicken? That's the picture. Bloody carcass, feathers everywhere. This is what sexual immorality does to your soul and to your body. It is a rampant cancer. In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 says, sexual immorality, unlike every other sin, is a sin that a person, though, commits outside has internal, inward effect. I remember when my dad turned 40, and I thought, man, he was so old. They had a over-the-hill party. And so everybody brought these macabre, do you know what macabre means, children? Sort of dark and depressing types of gifts. And one of the gifts that someone presented to my father was a plastic revolver where the barrel pointed at the person holding it. And the point was, you're so old, you may as well just shoot yourself. It's macabre, right? It's the joke. This is what sexual sin does. You pull the trigger, 
and it's violence coming back upon you as well as another person. There is great danger in it. And if I were to leave that raccoon out there in that pen, what would happen is absolute carnage. And Christ is saying to the saints in Thyatira, there's a fox in the hen house. There's a raccoon in the chicken pen. And if you tolerate her, this is what will happen. Look at what Christ has already done to Jezebel. Now look at the judgment that he brings upon her. First, there is context. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality, which means what? There were occasions where Christ used means within the church to get her to stop, but she would not stop. Time and again, Christ chastised her through the means of the church, yet she would not repent of her sexual immorality. That's the root sin. And so, behold, I will throw her onto a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into greater tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. Now, here is what sexual immorality is. It is one part sin, another part judgment. The sick bed that Christ throws, that Christ throws Jezebel upon is the judgment of rampant immorality. When you climb into bed with someone who is not your spouse, it is a sick bed. That's the only kind of bed it can be. And I don't mean just a bed. <laughs> it can be any place where you are engaging in sexual immorality. That is a bed of death. Now, sometimes that is very obvious, right? The marriage bed was given to a husband and wife to do a number of things. This is not that kind of talk. Quick summary. Be holy, grow the family. That's pretty good, right? Short and condensed. To be holy, and to be holy, you must operate within the boundaries of God's law. And the benefit of obedience to God's law is what? When you obey, what is the fruit? Life. Holiness begets life. Unholiness, wickedness begets what? Death. Just when two men lie down together, is there life coming from that transaction? There is no way. I don't care what you read in the newspapers. There are no seahorse parents. Go look up that article. <laughs> God has designed people to function well according to his will. And when there is obedience, there is life every time. It may be delayed. It will always be afflicted by sin. We've experienced that in this congregation. There are times when even through obedience we experience hardship, but it is not this kind of hardship. Here it is referred to as great tribulation, and it is wholly tied to a lack of repentance for particular types of sins. All sin is worthy of God's wrath, but these things, look at verse 24, are the deep things of Satan. 
the deep things. It's one thing to misuse a Red Ryder BB gun. It's another thing to fool around with dynamite. You may kill a bird with a Red Ryder. You'll blow up the house with dynamite. Christ is saying they're messing with dynamite. And here is your sin. You're watching them and you're not doing anything about it. Now, will there be some in the church who say, well, we need to be polite about confronting people in their sin. Do you know who wants people to be polite? It's the people who are sinning. (laughs) And it's directly the people who know that what they need is not soft words. It is swift and clear warning. Now, that does not mean you have to be a jerk about it. Nowhere here does Christ say, shun. What does he say? Don't you dare tolerate or fall into the same kinds of sins. In fact, that's the exhortation. First, the rebuke, you've tolerated. Then there is the call, hold fast. Verse 25, what you have until I come for the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. The call is to conquer. The call is to go out there and take the raccoon and deal with it so that it doesn't come back. To get the fox out of the hen house. To take the dynamite out of it. To diffuse. To protect. To be about the cause of protecting the church against those who would seek to bring her to her knees under the weight of sexual immorality. And so the exhortation is really quite simple. First, don't be caught in this kind of sin, and don't be caught tolerating it. The problem now is this. There is a whole media empire that loves to report when people do not tolerate this kind of behavior. Which means, if we are to be a true church of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we are to not tolerate the things that the world not only tolerates but approves of, then what must we do? We must hold fast to Christ and let go of the approval of the world, which is what Christ is saying that we are to live coram Deo, that we are to live before the face of God. After all, whose approval are you seeking? Jezebel or Jesus Christ? There are those who went with Jezebel, but to the rest, verse 24, of you and Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not immersed yourself in this dark sin, There is but one burden. Keep yourselves from evil. Sometimes that's all we can actually handle. It's hard enough. And young people, those of you who are on your cell phones all the time, 
it will be almost impossible to avoid the kinds of siren songs that come to you from the World Wide Web. Because the World Wide Web doesn't just present particular temptations. It presents this false promise that the world is yours and everything is for your enjoyment. And that way of thinking is blasphemous. It is a violation of the first commandment to fear God and to worship him alone. And this is just the way it is. Obviously, Richard Baxter, preaching as a Puritan four centuries ago, would not have warned his congregation about the dangers of the World Wide Web. I can't imagine what these kinds of guys would think about the World Wide Web. That's probably all they would preach on if they were alive today. But it isn't just that, right? It's an acknowledgement that our hearts are very good at going astray. Oftentimes we sing in that hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Um, Here is my heart, Lord, take and seal it. What does that mean? Now, it, 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 it's, it's followed by a confession, Lord, you know me, my heart, I'm prone to wander. Do you think that about yourself? That there is a constant allurement. It's not one of these things where Satan comes to you and endeavors to tempt you and you say no, and then he goes, well, I guess I'll never try that again. They're just too impenetrable. No, what is he going to do? He's going to come to you when you're weak. He's going to seek to lead you astray. Listen, Satan came to Christ and asked for Peter. And Christ said no. And so what is the call? Hold fast. Hold fast to whom? To the one who will be given to the saints when they are victorious. So let's look at the very end, or verse 28. And I will give to the one who conquers, who holds fast, who keeps the works of Christ to the end, I will give him the morning star. Well, who is the morning star? Well, Revelation chapter 22, it's Christ himself. The reward of faithfulness is the full gift of Christ himself to us. And so we're called to hold fast. Rather than tolerate Jezebel and her acolytes, we are to remove her and that kind of thinking and teaching and degradation of the law of God, and we are to constantly seek to conquer idolatry and immorality. And was it John Owen that said, if you are not busy killing sin, sin will kill you. It's not Nerf swords. These are real blades and they bring death. And either you seek to kill sin by the Lord's help or sin will kill you. And the reward for endeavoring to take dominion over all things in the name of Christ Jesus is what? Dominion. 
The one who conquers, verse 26, and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give dominion over the nations. You see, what Jezebel was promising is the same thing that Satan promised at the tree and in the wilderness. And at every point in your life, it's what? You can have what God promises now instead of when he promises it will come. You just get it quicker. But what is the cost? It's actually nothing like what God's promising. It looks like it, right? But it isn't it. And many people will say, I'll take the thing now versus the thing that is promised. Because at least I know I'm in charge. Well, are you? And that's the great lie, right? You think I have freedom when I lie down in this bed. Oh, wait, this is a sick bed. It's a pit that leads unto death. And the woman that I'm kissing right now is bringing my soul to hell. And I'm speaking metaphorically still here because <laughs> it happens the other way around too. If you are not ruled by sin, then you will be one who will rule the nations. And the great prize is that Christ himself will give himself to us. Because the feet that will trample the nations, well, let's look. The one who conquers and who keeps my works into the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he, that is the saint, who does what he is told, will rule them with an iron rod or a rod of iron. Here in Psalm 2, we find some coherence. In Psalm 2, it is the Son of Man, Christ himself, who rules. Christ will give us dominion alongside of him. If you are ruled by sin, you will not rule with Christ. And so the call is clear. Be ruled or rule. And this is always the tension for parents. Young people, what your parents want for you is that you will not be ruled by sin. And so what do they do? Oftentimes they rule you with a rod of iron because they want you to be very much afraid of not being self-ruled. And oftentimes parents make a lot of mistakes. They have difficulty letting their children make decisions to go off and do something or that thing. But the whole intent is what? It's Christ's call here to not be governed, to not be ruled, to not be overruled by anything other than the perfect word of God. Because those who will conquer are those who conquer now. So what does that mean for us as a church? We ought not abide any sexual immorality or idolatry. And that when sexual immorality is spotted within the church, you ought to expect your session to deal with it and to not turn a blind eye because it's uncomfortable when you begin to deal with it, either in the session or among the sheep. It should not be tolerated because the end of all of this, it's chaos. There are churches or those who call themselves churches today who have tolerated sexual sin for so long I, it's, it's astounding what they say, what comes from the pulpit, the morality in which that they endorse. It's, it's wretched. But Christ would have us to walk another way. 
And there is always that great promise, I will give him the morning star. You see, in all rebellion, there is always the pursuit of an objective that we think will give us satisfaction. And Christ is saying, here I am. At the end of, at the end of, of faithfulness to me, here I am. I am the reward. So let's live for Christ. Let me pray. Oh Lord, our God, we ask this.